0: If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me if you would to Revelation chapter 20, looking at verses 7 through 10 this morning. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today asking, Lord, for clarity. Asking you, Lord, to help us that we might see the truth in this passage. That we might understand that we are in a war Heavenly Father, we would pray that you would help us that we might hate Satan, that we might despise who he is, what he does, that we might despise his deception, that we might look forward to that day when you bring about his end. Heavenly Father, just be with us now in great power. Give us wisdom, direction, and insight. May Christ be exalted and lifted up in this message, and may this congregation be edified through it. And it's in Jesus' holy and wonderful and precious name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. For the Christian, this world is not an arena. It is an arena. It's not an armchair. It is a battlefield. It is not a playground. As Christians, we are called to be gladiators, not spectators. As J. Gresham Machen said, it is impossible for the Christian soldier not to fight. Now why is that so? Because the Christian has an enemy that desires our death and our destruction. We have an enemy who is real, who is vicious, who is violent, and who is filled with hatred. Throughout the Bible, he's called by different names. The evil one the ancient serpent, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the murderer, the tempter, the liar, the thief, the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren, Belial, Beelzebub, Apollyon, Abaddon, the adversary, the enemy, the great red dragon, the devil, and of course, Satan." And you may say, now wait a minute now, Doug. You're not telling me that you really believe in a personal devil, do you? What choice do I have? Uh, Folks, uh, if you go through the Old Testament, there are seven Old Testament books that speak directly about his existence. If you go through the New Testament, every New Testament writer speaks of Satan. Every one. Jesus himself in the Gospels spoke of Satan 25 different times. And often it's a a direct conversation that he is having with Satan himself. Folks, I dare uh, not deny the existence of Satan. Satan is driven by two passions. Number one is hatred for God, and number two is hostility toward the human race. He wages war against the Christian in Ephesians 6. He undermines confidence in the Word of God, uh, Genesis chapter 3. He hinders Christian ministry, 1 Thessalonians 2. He brings discouragement in 1 Peter 5. He infiltrates the church with false doctrine, and that's found in 1 John 4. He promotes division in the congregation, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He is described as bearing the ferocity of a lion and yet having the attractiveness of an angel of light. Folks, He has power to attack us because He knows our weaknesses and He knows our vulnerabilities. So today what I want to do is I want to share with you four points as we take a look at Satan's defeat. Point one is Satan's release. Look with me at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Let me do a very quick review. What is the thousand years? It is the church age. It is that long period of time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. It is not a golden age, a literal thousand year golden age that will take place uh, after the second coming. It is what's going on in this life right now. Second question, what does it mean that Satan is bound? It does not mean that he is totally incapacitated. He is bound in one area and that area is this, He can deceive the nations no more. And what does that mean? That means He can't stop the proliferation of the gospel. He cannot stop the missionary enterprise. Next month on March 15th, Dale Powell is going to be sharing with us the Gideon presentation. We have an opportunity to take up an offering for the Gideons and they send Bibles out all over the world. And Dale will be sharing with us how last year, hundreds of thousands of Bibles were given out in communist countries, in Islamic countries, in secular humanistic countries. And many of those people have heard the Word of God because of that, have read the Word of God because there's a Bible in their hands, and many of them have come to Christ. Folks, Satan cannot stop that. But what can Satan do? He can kill, steal, and destroy. For he walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Uh, Paul says that we we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and rulers of darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. We are still told to stand strong uh, against the wiles of the devil. We are told to resist the devil and he will flee from us. Satan is still alive and well, but he is bound in his ability to deceive the nations. But verse 7, verse 7 tells us that at the end of the thousand years, in other words, at the end of church history, uh, Satan is going to be released for a little while, for a short season, which actually means that he'll be able once again to deceive the nations. Now what happened? Did somebody pay his bail? Did, uh, uh, is he getting time off for good behavior? Did God have a change of heart? And the answer to that is absolutely no. Look with me again at verse 3. Verse 3. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. If you've got a pen, take your pen and circle that word must. It does not say may, it does not say could, it does not say should. It says that he must be released for a little while. In other words, the releasing of Satan, the allowing of him to deceive the nations again is a God thing. It's a God thing. This is not a change of plans. This is not Satan having his way. This is a sovereign promise that we have from God that this is going to happen and it's going to happen by a sovereign move of God. I hope you get a lot from this study. I hope you see the holes in dispensationalism. I hope you understand that the church is uh, not going to be spared persecution. I hope you reject the idea of a two-phased second coming of Christ. But most of all, I hope you see this truth that the concept of dualism is not truth. Now, what is dualism? Dualism is believing that there are two gods. There's Satan, the god of evil, and there's God, the god of good, and that they're fighting each other to, to see who's going to be victorious in the end. No, no, no. Totally reject that. For folks, Satan is a created being of God. Satan's very existence is dependent upon God himself. His evil against God is not hindering God's plan. It is part of God's plan. As Satan wages war on God, it's like he's sawing off the limb that he is sitting on. All right, point two, Gog and Magog. Look with me at verses 7 through 9. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. The number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. If you live back in the 1970s and you were a Christian, it's probably a pretty good chance that you read a book by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. Uh, Hal Lindsey wrote several other books and he wrote those books also from a dispensational premillennial hermeneutic. And there were a plethora of other books that were written at that very same time that had the same understanding of the last days as, uh, did, um, as did Hal Lindsey. They were taking the newspaper in one hand and they were taking apocalyptic uh, scriptures from Ezekiel and Daniel and the book of Revelation And they were putting them together and saying, wow, look how this fits. And this was their conclusion. Oh, this must mean that we are the generation that will be living when Jesus Christ returns to the earth. Now folks, Jesus told us not to do that. He said that no man will know the day or the hour. And yet they have done the very thing anyway. I was a brand new Christian at that time and I bought into Hal Lindsey's book, Hook, Line, and Sinker. Man, I thought this was great. Nobody had ever told me about apocalyptic literature. Uh, no, I, I didn't know that you were to take the historical books of the Bible, like Genesis or, or the Gospels, and that you were to take them literally, but when there's apocalyptic literature or a parable, you must take those symbolically. No, nobody ever told me that. So what did, what did Hal Lindsey say about Gog and Magog? He said that Ezekiel said that Gog was the chief prince And the word chief in the Hebrew is rosh. He said, wow, that sounds like Russia. And and Russia is is a nation that hates Israel that is to the north of Israel. And then he said he's the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Meshach sounds a whole lot like Moscow. And Moscow is the political capital of Russia. And Tubal sounds a whole lot like Toblask which is the uh, um, industrial capital of Russia. So here we have Russia to the north, who's an enemy of Israel, and they are going to attack Israel. They're going to come down into Israel because they hate Israel because of the ties that we ha- they have with the U.S. And Israel's monotheistic, Russia's atheistic, and say so they are going to attack Israel, and it's going to happen sometime right after the rapture of Jesus Christ. Hal Lindsey also went on to say that the rapture has to take place before 1988. And he says that this attack from Russia on Israel will have to take place within the next seven seven years, so it will have to take place before 1995. Well, guess what? It didn't happen. It did not happen. Folks, I didn't realize this, but I've discovered that Lindsey was not the first to do this. Uh, there are a plethora of, of people, of theologians, all the way through church history that have made crazy, wild speculations about Gog and Magog and who they were. In Ian Dugman's commentary on Ezekiel, he said the following, and listen to this carefully. He said, Perhaps few Old Testament passages have seen so many attempts to interpret them in the light of current events as Ezekiel 38 and 39. This is hardly a new phenomenon. The church father, Ambrose, writing in the late 4th century, confidently identified Gog as the Goths. In the 7th century, Gog and Magog were the Arab nations that threatened the Holy Lands. By the 13th century, Gog had become a name for the Mongol hordes from the east. In the 17th century, Gog was identified as the Roman emperor, the pope, or the Turks. In the 19th century, Wilhelm Gassinius, identified Rosh as Russia. This view was popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible, along with the idea that Meshach and Tubal were Moscow, Moscow and Toblask. Duguid concluded, With its vivid imagery and pictorial language, Ezekiel 38 and 39 lends itself to a flexible application to whatever the contemporary dangers to world peace are perceived to be. In a world of much tribulation there will always be a plausible explanation of why these times in particular fit the description of the biblical end times. Now, in the Jewish Talmud, um, in the Jewish Talmud that the Jews used, just I mean, they, they used that all the time. In Jesus' day, they were using it just extensively. And you could find a Jewish Talmud in every single synagogue in in Israel. John was very, very familiar with, uh, with this uh, Jewish Talmud. And if you study the Jewish Talmud, you'll find that it has a lot to say about Gog and Magog. The Jewish Talmud states with no hesitation that the term Gog and Magog was not meant to point to a particular nation, but that it was meant to point to the entire enemies of God throughout the world, the people that will rise up against God and, and do everything they can to wipe God's people off the face of the earth. Now look at verse 7 and 8 again and ask yourself a question. Does this sound like a Russian invasion or is it much larger than that? And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. Now look at that vast number. As many as the sand of the sea. This is not an attack from some localized nation. This is a, a worldwide revolt that he's talking about here. Once again, I want to quote from Dugwood. The point of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is not that at some distant point in future history those particular nations will oppose Israel while others, America and Britain, for example, will rally to Israel's aid. Rather, these nations from the ends of the earth, from all four points of the compass, represent symbolically a supreme attempt by the united forces of evil to crush the peace of God's people. Now listen carefully to this. This, not coincidentally, is the interpretation given to Gog and Magog in Revelation 20 verse 8. They represent the nations in the four corners of the earth whom Satan gathers for the final battle against God's people, the city he loves. Their defeat in Revelation is the prerequisite for the establishment of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city of Revelation 21. All right, point three is Satan's defeat. Look with me at verses 9 through 10. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right, the picture here is the devil uh, just leading Christ-rejecting unbelievers. They march over the broad plain of the earth and they surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city, Jerusalem. Now, if you take this literally... You've got a multitude of unbelievers who are there, right there in, in Jerusalem and in Israel. And the Scripture says that they're as many as the sands of the sea. Um, you know how big Israel is? You can take the land area of Israel and put it in Mecklenburg and Union County. It's that small. Folks, think of the absurdity of a literal translation here. This would mean billions upon billions of unbelievers that are in this tiny little land of Israel and they're surrounded, the Christians, who are in a little campsite in Jerusalem. Is that really what John is trying to tell us? No. Are all the true Christians in physical Israel at that time? No. This is symbolic imagery. John goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. How did people live? How did the people of God live uh, during the, the time where they, they left Egypt and were headed to the promised land? They, they lived in tents. They had a big fence that went all the way around. They'd set that fence up. They put the tabernacle of God that represented God's presence right in the center of it. And then they, they would live in tents. Now, why did they do that? They did that so they could be mobile. They did that so as soon as God said, get up and go, they could get up and go. And folks, this is a picture, a beautiful picture of the Christian today. That's the way we are to look at ourselves. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. We're pilgrims and strangers on this earth. Our roots are not to be dug down too deep. Our home is heaven. This earth is just temporary. What is the tabernacle or temple today? Is it a canvas tent? Is it a big brick building? Paul says no. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Where's the presence of God now? It's in us. It's in the children of God. So the camp of the saints is a picture of true Christians all over the world. The city of God here is called Jerusalem. Very interesting. Sometimes the book of Revelation is called The Tale of Two Cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. We've been studying what Babylon was. What is it? It's a secular political world system. It has corrupt government, political corruption, financial greed, dog-eat-dog philosophy. We saw in Revelation 18 how that day is coming when that world system is going to be absolutely destroyed. But Jerusalem is a picture of the true church, the people of God, the chosen ones, God's children. So don't view this as a literal attack on the city of Jerusalem. This is a worldwide phenomenon. Persecution of the Christians at this point in time as we're reading it today is going to be at an all-time high. We look at persecution of Christians around the world today, and we see it in Nigeria and the Sudan We see it in China and Malaysia and Iraq and Iran and places all over the world. But folks, in this day, in the last day, there's going to be persecution all over the entire world. Christians are not going to be spared that persecution. So uh, it's everywhere and what happens? Look at at the last phrase in verse 9. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. By this time, praise God the Christians will have been removed. What's going to happen? Well, first of all, there's going to be a resurrection of those believers who are in heaven. They are going to receive new glorified bodies. They're going to be with Christ there in the clouds. And then those believers who are here on earth are going to receive new glorified bodies and be translated. And we will meet the Lord in the clouds. And then we will immediately, immediately return as the Lord brings judgment upon this earth. Jesus speaks the word, and fire consumes the unbelieving world. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through 10, we see this same picture that John paints for us in Revelation chapter 20, but we get Paul's explanation of what's going on. Let me read that to you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan is finished. His eternity will be a, a, a lake of fire forever and ever. He will never be heard from again. I tell you, God's torment of, of Satan here is almost laughable because he can't do a thing about it. I, I kind of picture like a, there's a big weight lifter Got muscles bulging all over him. And he's, he's just standing there and all of a sudden a mosquito lands on his bicep. And he just reaches over slap, and just smacks it into absolute oblivion. And that mosquito is no more. In Isaiah 14, we read the story of, of Lucifer's fall and his, uh, then his final destruction. And it's very interesting. When it describes his final destruction, the world is just shocked. And they're just amazed at, at what's happened. Here he is, he's being destroyed, he's being cast into hell, and he can't do a thing about it. Let me read that to you from Isaiah fourteen, fifteen 15-16. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see you shall narrowly look upon you and consider you, saying, Is this the one that made the earth to tremble, that did shake the kingdoms? Folks, if we really believed what the Bible says about God's sovereignty, about God's power, about God's strength, then we would not fear anything but God. Amen? Satan cannot even put up a fight. Jesus just speaks the word and he's cast into a burning lake of fire. My fourth point, Paul's explanation of Satan being loosed. I want to go back to 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 through 7. every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. Paul says that in the last days, right before Christ returns, there will be a great falling away. Apostasy will cover uh, across the earth. And people will turn from Christ with no conscience about it at all. Paul goes on to talk about the restrainer. Now who is the restrainer? The restrainer is the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit restrain Satan from deceiving? He does it by giving light. He does it by showing The truth. So think about it. When you got saved, when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, how did it happen? Let me tell you how it happened. The Scripture says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So you might have been witnessed to by somebody. You might have heard a sermon where you heard the Gospel. You, You may have been reading the Scriptures, and all of a sudden it was like the blinders fell off your eyes. And all of a sudden... You had spiritual light that you never had before. All of a sudden you saw that you had been the one who broke God's law. All of a sudden it was not just God's Word in general, it was God's Word to you personally. All of a sudden you realized that you are the one who sinned and comes short of the glory of God. And you realized that you needed a Savior. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There is only one way to the Father, and that is through the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what happened? The Holy Spirit of God had regenerated your heart. He illumined your mind, and He gave you light. And that's why you were able to come to Christ. So in the last days, when Satan is let loose for a short season, what happens? The Holy Spirit stops giving light to the world. The Holy Spirit withholds truth and deception will flourish and people will follow the man of sin. We see how this process of the removal of common grace takes place in Romans chapter 1. Theologians call this the process of reprobation. It's when a man just gives himself over to sin and he just spirals downward and downward until he hits rock bottom. I want to read a little part of this passage to you. And I want you to notice how many times it says, and God gave them up. Now, what does that mean? It means that they had the opportunity to trust God, but they, they wouldn't take it. And they gave themselves over to sin. And when that happened, God lifted His hand of grace off of them and let them just do what they wanted to do. Listen to this. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Paul is telling us that in the last days the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, will be taken out of the way. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's going to leave. The world couldn't function if there were no Holy Spirit. But it means that He backs off. And He allows people to do what their wicked hearts want to do. What's the Scripture say about the heart of man? It's desperately uh, wicked and deceitful above all things. And when God takes His hand off that desperately wicked heart, then that heart is given to just do what it wants to do. And in this case, and in this day and time that we're talking about here, they will just give themselves over to following the Antichrist. And yes, all that is done under the sovereign control of God. All that is done in God's perfect will. Jesus talked about that. And in John chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus said this, I have come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul goes on to say this, verses 9-12. through 12, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power, false signs, and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Folks, that's Paul's explanation of what John has been teaching us in Revelation chapter 20 when he says that Satan will be released for a little while or a short season. Having said that, let me close by remembering the theme of the book of Revelation. Because, brothers and sisters, the theme of the book of Revelation is our hope. And what is the theme of the book of Revelation? It is this, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. That's our hope. That is our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, tough passage today. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you help us that we might see it, that we might trust more in your sovereignty, that, Lord, our fear might be a fear of God, not a fear of man, not a fear of Satan, not a fear of disease or death or destruction, but only a fear of God that we belong to you and we only fear just getting out of your will. Help us, Heavenly Father, that we might be submissive to you, that we might love you more and more each day. Help us, Heavenly Father, that we might be prepared for any persecution that might come our way, that Jesus would be exalted through us. Guide and direct us now, Lord, in all that we do. May this church be a, a beacon, a, a lighthouse in this community. May the people in this community see Christ in us, and they may be drawn to that Christ who saved us and gave us eternal life. We love you, Jesus. Thank you and praise you for your goodness and love to us. And we ask this prayer in your holy and precious name. Amen.